if medical technology could determine when and how you were going to die, would you want to know? Tell me how you really feel. No. <laughs> right? Okay. So uh, with medical technology and kind of scientific discoveries, potentially, right, there could be a day that they could predict in people, you know, certain incurable diseases. And so a doctor might be able to tell an 18-year-old that you will certainly have an incurable disease later in life. And the question is not, will medical technology be able to do that? We've just learned more and more what medical technology can do. But the question is, but would you want to know that information? Because it is one thing to tell a 20-year-old, hey, you know, based upon what we've learned, you are prone to heart disease. So if you can change your diet here and do this exercise here, you could live longer. That, that could be helpful, right? But if you tell a 20-year-old that by the time that they are 70, they will have dementia and not be able to recognize anybody in their family, and there's nothing you can do about it, well, that's an entirely different story, isn't it? And so the question is this. How would what you know about your future impact the way you live now? How would what you know about your future impact the way you live now? It's a really important question, isn't it? And it's not just important about medical stuff, right? What you believe about the future does impact the way you live now. Young people, it's not just medical stuff. Think about this, right? If you knew the person that you were dating is not going to be the person that you would marry, that might change the relationship a little bit, don't you think? Hmm, you know, time to move on. Adults, if you knew for certain at tax time that you were going to receive a $20,000 refund, I mean, just play along for a second, okay, I mean, a $20,000 refund, that would impact, right, certainly how you view your current financial situation. Ken might not be driving anymore, right? I mean, um, those of you that love sports, I think back to the Super Bowl against the Falcons, you know, specifically, right? But if you knew your team was going to win the game, why watch? <laughs> why watch? Okay. But if you knew it, you DVR'd it and somebody let you know that, that they won, would you be upset at halftime? If you saw me pacing around at halftime, he's like, what is wrong with you? We all know that they won, right? So how the future impacts the present. Just yesterday, I was at a graduation celebration, and it felt like this was a conversation over and over and over again. It just means that I've been hanging out with um, you know, older people, I guess. I was not hanging around the teens that were celebrating graduation. I was holding, hanging out with the adults. And this was the conversation. If I would have known then what I know now, I would have not sold that Gibson guitar. I would have not sold that Pontiac Firebird. I, I, I mean, the conversation was just over and over of how we would change things if we knew then what we know now. So how you live now has everything to do with what you believe your future to be. How you live now has everything to do with how you, uh, what you believe your future to be. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we looked at last week, verses 7 through 12. 
And this week we're going to see how the resurrection, the promise of the resurrection changes the Apostle Paul. Paul believed in the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4.14, Paul says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul believed the resurrection. He believed that Christ rose from the dead and that one day Christ would raise him from the dead. Now, if you're a Christian, you believe the resurrection, right? You can't be a Christian unless you believe in the resurrection, okay? True. So we all believe the resurrection that named the name of Christ in here, and that's not really the problem. Here's the problem. I wonder how many of you have actually thought about the resurrection this week. How many decisions have we made that have been influenced by the fact that Christ died and rose again and that one day he will raise you up on the last day and you will stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. You see, if we look at Paul's life, Paul's life makes no sense without the resurrection. It's because he believed in the resurrection. We learned last week that he was willing to carry in his body the dying of the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 11. It is because he believed that ultimately one day in the future that he would reign with Christ, that he spoke so boldly about Christ in the present. Look at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. And so we believe, and so we also speak. Why are Christians bold to share their faith? Because of the resurrection. Without faith... In the resurrection, Paul's present sufferings, right, would make no sense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he would be a man most pitied if the resurrection was not true. So why is Paul enduring hardships? Why is he enduring suffering? Why is he filling up the sufferings of Christ? Because he actually believes in the resurrection. Why is he a slave to dying and to serve the local church? Because he believes in the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything for the Apostle Paul. And I pray this morning, as we look at the promise of the resurrection, that it will be a kindling to your faith. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, right? So as we hear the word of God, as we open it up about the resurrection, I pray that it will put some steel in your spine. As you're tempted to give up, you're tempted to lose heart. Paul says, the reason why I don't lose heart is because I actually believe in the promise of the resurrection. So you think about losing heart and how the resurrection can put steel in your spine and ignite your faith. This week, what were some of the things that made you just want to throw in the towel? This week, where were you tempted to lose heart? Was it at work when your reputation was on the line and being questioned? Was it with the forgiveness and forbearance that is required in marriage and parenting? Forgive again, forbear again, forgive again, forbear again. Why do we keep forgiving and forbearing with one another? Was it your physical health? Just consider what you were worried about this week, right? Where there was anxiety in your life. It probably shows that you've forgotten about the promise of the resurrection, the reality of it. Catch this, the resurrection does not just help you die well, the resurrection helps you live well. That's what Apostle Paul's saying. That's really, I guess, the sermon in a nutshell, right? 
that because Christians believe in life after death, we actually have life before death. Right? We know the ultimate, therefore it impacts how we look at and how we interpret the immediate. We know how it ends. We know the end of the story, right? We read the end. We win. And so the resurrection is a game changer. It puts everything in perspective. I just want to share with you this morning quickly three promises based on the resurrection that will not only help you die well, but will help you live well. Three promises on the resurrection that will not only help you die well, but live well. And at the end, we're going to have some time in pastoral prayer. And I've asked uh, Mark and Ben and Jeremy to consider each of these verses. We're going to pray through those verses at the end of the sermon. And so uh, would you guys each come up and use the microphone as we pray at the end. And church, we pray that you will be able to enjoy that as we consider how to work this into our lives through prayer. Let's hear God's word. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 through 18. Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been, spoke, has, what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This concludes the reading of God's holy in errant and inspired word, may he write its eternal truths in our hearts. Three promises to help you not only live well, or not only die well, but to live well. First here, because of the promise of the resurrection, here it is. We believe God works on the inside as the outside falls apart. Because of the resurrection, we believe that God works on the inside even as the outside falls apart. There's something in this verse, verse 16, that we want. Renewed day by day. But there's also something in verse 16 that we don't want. The outer self wasting away. Suffering. Suffering is indiscriminate. It's universal. Paul is no exception. If the Corinthians were to actually see Paul, now that he's writing this letter to them, and they were to look at him, they would know that he has aged. His outer appearance from the first time has broken down. He is falling apart. Last night, I was at that same graduation celebration, and we were talking about the senior saint years, the golden years, and one of our members said, it's not the golden years, it's the rusty years. <laughs> yeah, just that feeling of everything squeaks and aches and there's pains involved. And Paul was no different. His sicknesses, his injuries, his hardships, his pressures, his frustrations cost him a piece of his life. They all added up. Last week we heard Paul say in verse 12, death was at work in me. But even though Paul's body was groaning, Paul says my soul was growing. Right? His body is not what it used to be, but his soul is being remade into what it was supposed to be. Right? Think about it, right? So Paul is not what he once was. 
but his soul is actually going back to what it once was, which was Adam before the fall. He's actually getting remade into who Adam is, into our greater Adam, Jesus Christ, right? And so all that rust is being scraped off of his life. There is polishing. There is restoring him into what he was originally being made to be on the inside, even though his outside is falling apart. And so his body is not whole anymore, but Paul says my soul can actually be growing more holy. And so Paul says, I don't lose heart. From my outer decay because of my inner renewal. So how do you not lose heart for the outer decay? It's because you're actually having this inner working. He doesn't just look at his life only from the physical creaturely perspective. We get tempted to just kind of just look at all that's going wrong with our physical bodies. Paul says, no, I actually still look at my life as a whole from the standpoint that I'm a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, the, the next chapter, Paul says this, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a? I'm a new creation. Right? The old things have passed away, right? His soul's being made new. All things, behold, the new has come. So he's in that process of regeneration. 2 Corinthians 3, a chapter before, Paul says it this way. And we all, with unveiled faces, nothing between us and God, we are beholding the glory of the Lord, and what we behold is what we become. This is what he says. And we're being transformed into that same image, this is his words, from one degree of glory to another. As I behold God in his glory, I'm becoming like what I behold, and by one degree after another, I'm being turned into that. Did you catch that? It's a process, right? From one degree of glory to another. In our verse here, it says that he's being renewed day by day. Day after day, he's being renewed. Colossians 3.10 puts it this way. We have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul's not renewed in a once-for-all way. He's renewed day by day, which just practically means this. Faith family, you cannot live off of yesterday's grace any more than a sailor can live off of yesterday's wind. We need new mercies every morning, new graces every morning. And here's how it works, okay? Bill and I taught through 2 Corinthians 4 in the Sunday school class how many years ago? Five? Five years ago? And it happened, I found my notes, and it happened to be a week in this passage where my furnace quit. It was winter, and I learned a lot about a furnace. And I think this is how it works in our souls. You might say... That my furnace kicks on because I need heat. But really how it's really working is that there's a connection between the cold out there. It is something about the cold that when my thermostat sees that it goes below 64, that it actually is the cold that kicks on the furnace to start working. And it's the same thing in this passage. Paul is actually saying, it is my outer self as it is wasting away. It is the cold that is kicking on this inner renewal. And so how do you actually get renewed day by day? Paul looks at his sufferings, right? This wasting away as it's propelling him. It is pushing him forward to get renewed day after day after day. Now the only difference between me and you and my thermostat and my furnace is that my furnace does it automatically. Cold comes in, you hear the click, next thing you know I have heat. 
Suffering doesn't automatically produce that in us. We can get hard. We can get cold. But Paul sees his suffering propelling him on. Right? And that renewal happens day by day. Second, because of the promise, the resurrection, we believe the life to come is incomparably better than the life here and now. That's verse 17. Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This whole passage is comparisons. Paul just got done comparing, right, the outer self versus the inner self. He just had done comparing what is wasting away and what is being renewed. And now he begins to compare suffering as light and momentary to glory, which is weighty and eternal. Light, weighty. Momentary, eternal. And he begins to compare the two. And the Greek word here is hyperbole, which we get exaggeration from. When you tell a hyperbole, you're exaggerating. And the actual Greek here is from hyperbole to hyperbole. Beyond all comparison, there's no comparing your present suffering with the glory that is to come. But comparing is important as we want to continue and to press on. If you make the wrong comparison, you can be tempted to lose heart. Think about how we often counsel people with comparison. Hey, just think it could be worse. That's comparison of possibilities. Be encouraged. It could be worse. Thanks for that. Yeah, you're right. Could have been worse. Okay. Hey, cheer up. You still got it better than other folks. All right. Comparison with other people. Think about the kids starving in Africa. Eat those vegetables on your plate, right? I mean, it's, it's comparing what you have. How about this? Come on, haven't you been struggling with, with this long enough? It's not that bad. You are making way too big of a deal about this. You just need to move on. Get over it. The eagles, get over it. I mean, that's the song I was raised on in my dad's house, right? It's comparison with what suffering looks like to us. Because I think you should be over it, therefore, it should not be that big of a deal to you because I don't think it's that big of a deal to me. Or how about this? Look, you still have it better than you deserve. Comparison with merit. Or at least you're not as bad as you were two years ago. Comparison with your past. There's a place for those. But they don't compare with this promise of the life to come is incomparably better than the life here. Now let's compare those. Okay, Paul says that the afflictions are light and momentary and that the glory to come is weighty and eternal. And it would be tempting for us to think that Paul here is making a comparison in which he wants to minimize your suffering, right? In which he wants to downplay your suffering. But that's not true. Suffering is real. Earlier, Paul talked about suffering in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 8. Paul said he was utterly burdened beyond our strength that he despaired of life itself. Okay? So Paul really does feel suffering. He's not trying to get you to say, oh, your suffering is smaller. You're just making it look too big. No. He's not minimizing suffering. Really, what Paul is doing is he's just adding in glory. He's maximizing glory. If you had a view of what heaven was like, 24 hours there would just completely change your mind on what you went through to get there. That's what he's saying. 
And so when I look at suffering, it's not worth comparing to the glory that's to come. Which means this. A believer doesn't just want heaven over hell. A believer wants heaven over earth. I just don't want to go to hell. I want heaven. Okay. There might be a place for that. But a real believer that treasures Christ wants heaven even over earth. Paul says later in chapter 5, it almost doesn't even need to be a chapter division here, but in chapter 5, right, verse 8, Paul says we prefer to be absent from the body because then we can be present with Christ. A true believer sees death as a blessing because in death I'm finally with Christ. In death I finally sin no more. When this poor lispering, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, I'll still sing thy power to say, finally, right? We prize Christ over all the other things in this world. Well, how do you do that? How do you actually learn to prize Christ? I think this verse is teaching us that you actually learn to prize Christ through suffering. It's when everything else is tempted to be taken away from you that you begin to realize that Christ is enough, that he's better, that he's worth it. So would you notice here in this verse, verse 17, that affliction and glory aren't just contrasted. They're not just compared. They're actually interrelated. Notice that Paul says, for this light momentary affliction, here's the next two key words, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it's not just comparing suffering to glory. What he's actually saying here is that suffering actually is God, because he's so sovereign and he's so good and he's so wise, God can actually design the suffering in your life to produce glory. There's a real connection between how you suffer and how much you're going to enjoy God in glory. I was able to find a quote from Jonathan Edwards. I think it clarifies better than I could ever say it. He gives us a word picture. This is what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, suffering is a sharp, whittling tool. So think of that sharp, wood-cutting, whittling tool that God uses to carve a bigger cup for us that can hold more future glory. So when you look at your suffering, what is it doing? What if your suffering is actually there? Yes, it, it hurts. There, it's sharp. It, it, does, it does smart, but it isn't just pointless. In God's sovereign good hands, your pain is never wasted. It actually is carving out. Your life is this cup, and it's just carving out more of the inside of the cup so that when you get to glory, you could hold more glory. You could enjoy him more. It's because of what you went through that you actually now have a bigger cup to hold all that God is, and you treasure him. That's what Jonathan Edwards on this verse. So faith family, don't let the suffering of the now steal the joy of what is to come. Look at your suffering as actually serving you. It's only making your cup larger to actually behold and enjoy more of who God is. Finally, because of the promise of the resurrection, we believe that what we can't see is more important than what we do see. Let's look at verse 18. 
What we can't see is more important than what we do see. Paul says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is contrasting where you need to look in your life so as not to lose heart. Paul knows where to look and he knows where not to look. Faith family, are you living only according to what you can see? Paul says, if you're living with goals and aspirations only for what you can see, they will be transient. It will distort your picture of reality. If what you are living for are only things that you can touch and hold and see, then it will distort the bigger picture of what is actually there. Think about it this way. What if you, your whole life, was based around just how you look, the clothes you wear? I'm picking that because I come from the Washington, D.C. area where we spend a lot of money on how we look and how we dress. I don't think you have to have a lot of money to do that, but I think it just is something that we put money towards and that we value. And so I remember being a young person caring about what I looked like and what I wore. But let's think about that. If that was what my life was about. Okay, clothes. Something I can see, something I can hold. But isn't there more to the story than just clothes? We know, as adults, more than young people do, that one day we are going to die. And when you die, if you worship clothes, it must be death to you to think that you only get one outfit. I'm glad you're laughing. I didn't know if that was going to be funny or not. I was like, Did I, I don't want to hurt anybody with that. Okay, I'm just thinking, right? you only get one outfit and you probably didn't choose it. And if your family's spiteful, <laughs> it could be it could be disastrous. Okay, and even if you you know are OCD and you control that and you plan what you're going to wear, okay, and you tell everybody what the songs you're going to sing and this is what I'm going to look like, okay, and you, you do all of that, eventually those clothes are going to become outdated. They're going to deteriorate and even disintegrate. And so, do you spend any time? with something that is going to last for eternity. I know we have lawns to manicure, houses to refurbish. We have degrees to get, jobs to pursue and to climb the ladder of. But Paul says you have to keep in view things that you can't see. There are the things that you can't see that are actually going to last. You have to train yourself, right, as Christians to see what you can't see. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, writes this. What is concrete and immaterial can be kept in view only by painful effort. Right, did you hear? Concrete, but yet immaterial, can only be kept in view through hard effort. That's why the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. The real problem comes, he says, each morning when you wake up. Here's what he says. All of your wishes and hopes and hurts and hates for the day rush at you like wild animals. You ever feel that way you wake up? Even on Mother's Day. All of that just comes rushing at you, okay? And your first job each morning consists in shoving them all back. In listening to that other voice. Taking the other point of view. Let that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. And so on, all day, we can only do it moments at first. 
But from those moments, the new sort of life will be spreading through our system because now we are letting God work at the right part of us. Right? It takes effort. I want to help you in this painful effort to keep the concrete, even though it's immaterial and you can't see it, this eternal in view. How do we listen to that other voice that keeps eternity in mind? I think this applies to moms, dads, people in the workforce, and even as you consider being a citizen of our country. I think of those young people that are zealous to make a difference, that want to speak up for those that are silenced, that want to stand up for those that are oppressed. We don't have to take our cues from the world. I think our world and how they're handling justice issue is pretty short-sighted. There is hope as you consider the promise of the resurrection, right? As you consider and as you know what is the ultimate, it actually will help you in the immediate. Three little quick applications for you. First, don't ignore the signs of death that you see and feel. Don't ignore the signs of death that you see and feel. There is deterioration in our country. There is destruction in our homes. There's death all around us. See those things at home, at work in our nation. But don't respond in anger or anxiety. As you look at it and you feel the pain, anger takes that pain and it kind of just unleashes it on other people. And it blames other people or attacks other people. Anxiety takes the pain and then puts it all on our shoulders. You ever felt those two things warring in you? You see the pain in the world, you see the pain in your home, and you either get angry or you get anxious. Anger? Ah, oh, it's your fault. How could you let this happen? Can I turn on the news? It's your fault. No, it's your fault. Anger or anxiety. You actually try to make a difference, and you just put yourself in the center of it, and you say, it's all up to me. This household, if it's going to be anything, it's all on my shoulders. Where is there anybody to help? Okay. True story. We see that in our heart, we see it in the world, but a Christian, don't ignore the signs of death that you see and feel, but may that be a cause to kind of push you into the true sanctuary of God. Second, don't minimize the signs of life that you see and feel, right? By God's grace, there are still signs of life here. Even in this fallen world, there are still sunrises. There are still smiling children. There are tears from laughing too hard by being with good friends. Still see that and give thanks to God for that, right? There are signs of even you as a believer as your outward life is wasting away. There are signs of being renewed day by day. Maybe this morning we sung your favorite hymn. I know there's a fountain's one of mine. It's just a sign, oh God, thank you for making me want to sing that song and love it. You know? Last. Don't forget that God sees more than you see. Don't forget that God sees more than you see. I think most of us are tempted to lose heart because we forget that God sees more than we see. And have you considered that your discouragement at home or at work in our nation is really a form of arrogance? Because of what you can see and how you add the situation up. Are we really that arrogant to think that we see it all? God sees what you see. Even that discouraging circumstance that you think he's doing nothing about. God sees that. 
But God also sees far more than you see. And the future does not look bleak to him. What a great promise. He will build his church. I was reminded this week of being at this conference. Our, our church is doing you know, well. Praise the Lord for his grace in that. It's healthy. Most of this church was dying and shriveling and just the Corinthian church, you know, like all over again in the modern world. You know what? Even if one church closes, and you could be tempted to think that that's the only church, praise God there's a church in Epsom. Praise God there's a church in Chichester. There's churches in Concord. And God has this universal church around the world. And it's like, yes, individual churches, and we can think that that is just the end. There's nothing going on. Where, where are their salvations? What is God doing? Well, every now and again, it's nice to zoom out and be with other pastors representing around the world going, wow, God really is still building his church. People are getting saved in the UAE and going to Afghanistan and Iraq as pastors sent from that church. Wow. Who would do that? Just super encouraging. Now, we should be encouraged by looking around and seeing the healthier. Okay, I don't want to get a bad picture, but at times we can, get, we can lose sight. Future's not bleak to God. Do you know how the Bible ends? Jesus' last words are in Revelation 22, 20. Last words that Jesus spoke in the Bible. He says this, Surely I am coming soon. And how did the people of God respond? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He, he's coming. He, he, the future is bright because he's coming. He's going to rule over all. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and that should give us hope that he returns. And so now, how does that impact your now? We fear nothing now. The resurrection disarms the fear of man. What's the worst they can do to you? I mean, think about Lazarus, right? I mean, after he died, got resurrected back to life. I mean, like, you think he was ever afraid of witnessing teens? Like, be a Lazarus, right? I mean, you think he was ever, I've already been there. I know what happens. You know, I'm back. He gives him the confidence. We endure suffering with hope because we know that our suffering and our work is not in vain. So faith family, knowing how it ends will help you live now. I don't know if medical technology will be ever able to tell you when and how you'll die. But I know that the Bible tells you what will happen when you do. And if you know Jesus and you've repented of your sins and put your trust in him, you have been given a promise of his resurrection. And that promise of the resurrection has everything to do with how you live now. Mark, Jeremy, and Ben, would you pray for us in that order? Mark first, then Jeremy, then Ben, come on up. It's going to just take some time just to fly on the wings of these men's prayers.